everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your favorite podcast, all but the books of Rick Riordan. Today, we're continuing The House of Hades. How are you doing today, Jane? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. I My headphones, they're on their last legs. They <laughs> oh, are, no. They are so on their last legs that, like, when we were talking before we started recording, uh, you sounded absolutely fine. But now that you're like, you know, you're talking slightly louder because you're in podcaster voice mode, uh, it's enough to make them kind of buzz slightly whenever you speak. Oh no! So I mean, this is this is fine. This is I I will I will make use of our generous patrons' money to buy some new headphones. Probably that sounds like a good idea. I I I've had some headphone woes recently too. Uh-huh. My my wonderful girlfriend bought me new uh, earbuds for christmas and it was such a sweet gift and then i think it was maybe january late january i lost them at a friend's house while we were doing our rpg night oh no uh they were they were found but we haven't we haven't convened yet for another rpg group since then uh or since since they were found so i'm I'm gonna get those back eventually (laughs) Uh, this is this is your your character creation motivation yeah yeah that's right i lost my headphones and now that means i have to go what what game is this what what am i making motivation for i don't know fucking masks because i lost my headphones i was transformed by a pure uh energy wave of uh not having proper earbuds (laughs) and so i became this hulking monstrosity of sound waves your hulking monstrosity that um sits in doctor's waiting rooms watching instagram reels with no headphones in Okay, I have become a person <laughs> who listens to podcasts with no headphones in. Just when Jacqueline. just when I'm at home. Oh, okay, no, that's that's fine. That's acceptable. Not not in doctors' office, like in my home while I'm doing chores or like, uh, like th- those types of things. It's just it's so nice to be able to like I can put on the podcast and also have my earbuds in to play like a rhythm game or something. <laughs> Uh, we truly are always consuming three types of media at once to avoid having a thought. Yeah. Hey, if you can hear this, if this if this is coming out with someone's speaker and they don't have any headphones, this person's an asshole, and you should laugh at them. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. Fucking throw tomatoes <laughs> at this person. Sorry, sorry, fan. <laughs> sorry, unwise girls fan. I know you thought we would never betray you, but the time has come. <laughs> But you know what I do have thoughts about? What do you have thoughts about? Uh, chapters 6 through 12 of The House of Hades. Hell yes. So shall I shall I dish out some summaries? I think you should. All right. Pardon me. That's chapter 7 through 12. Chapter 7, Annabeth. Annabeth and Percy have to navigate their way down a nightmarishly steep cliff to get to the River Phlegathon, a river of pure fire. By the time they get there, their skin is covered in boils and their throats have closed up from the poisonous air. Annabeth theorizes that the fire could be an underworld equivalent of nectar and ambrosia, meant to keep victims of torture from dying. And before Percy can object, she cups the liquid fire in her hands and drinks. It's hotter than anything, but heals them still, saving them both from their close call with death. Their journey is only just started, though, and it's almost ended when Arachne attacks from above. Percy destroys her with Riptide, but if he hadn't, Annabeth would have died for sure. Before she can reform, they follow the river downstream, deeper into Tartarus. Chapter 8, Annabeth. After just a few hundred yards, Annabeth and Percy overhear some familiar voices. Five and Pausai, the demon cheerleaders who attacked Percy and Annabeth in the past. 
Annabeth especially has a grudge against Kelly, who, if you'll remember, manipulated Luke into slipping further into the dark side. Kelly is leading the Impal side toward the doors of death, and although she may not be aware of it, she's leading our heroes, too. Chapter 9, Leo. Leo ain't doing great. Instead of sleeping in his room, he's been spending most nights since the end of last book crawling all over the statue of Athena, trying to find any special helpful tricks. But unfortunately, it's more magic than technology, so Leo isn't able to just feel it out. When he does end up getting some sleep, he has a dream where Gaia taunts him, showing him various visions. Clytius, the giant who absorbs magic and apparently prevents Leo from summoning fire. Octavian in a ruined camp half-blood speaking in Gaia's voice. And a sorceress lying in wait outside the house of Hades, who nearly kills Leo from inside his dream before he's woken up by Jason telling him everybody is gathering in the mess hall. Chapter 10, Leo. Nico's gotten everyone together to tell them about the House of Hades, where Greek pilgrims went in ancient times to speak with the dead and honor their ancestors. The gang chats about that's kind of like various other cultural traditions, then get into more of the specifics. Each level of the temple brings you closer to the underworld. If the spirits are pleased by your offerings, they'll do cool stuff for you, and if not, you would probably die or get lost in the tunnels. The entrance is guarded by Clytius, the anti-Hecate, as well as the witch Leo saw in his dream, who Hazel says is her problem to deal with. Frank starts to get a bit anxious about it being July, seven being an unlucky number representing ghosts. Their meeting is interrupted by a sudden attack on the ship. The dwarves Hecate told them to find have invaded, tied up Piper and Coach Hedge, and begun to steal everything valuable. Chapter 11, Leo. The dwarves easily take down the entire crew, largely via antics, and end up taking a whole bunch of important stuff. Leo's tool belt, Piper's dagger, the Archimedes sphere, and more. Leo and Jason are the only two who are able to go after them once they escape. The two fly down into Bologna and chase them through the streets to a statue of Neptune, full cock out. There, the dwarfs introduce themselves as the Kirkapes, Akmon and Palos, two blokes who do fuck all that once robbed Hercules himself. They pant. They pants Leo by stealing his zipper, activate a trap in the Neptune statue that hangs Jason upside down, then run off once more. Chapter 12, Leo. Leo has to chase the dwarfs through Bologna all on his lonesome, eventually stopping by a grocery store when they ascend a nearby tower. There, he buys a bunch of random stuff he can use to make improvised weapons. He bribes the guard with candy bars, climbs the tower, and then quickly bests the dwarves with homemade firecrackers. He ties them up and takes all their shit back, which is when Jason arrives through the window, a bit too late to make a cool entrance. Along with their stuff, they also take an old bronze navigation device that Odysseus invented at the end of his life, though it's missing the crystal it needs to make it work, as well as a book from a god in Venice. They promise to leave the dwarfs alive with the rest of their ill-begotten goods, so long as they make good on a deal. Instead of hanging out in Bologna, they'll go make the life of the Camp Jupiter warband hell. So, Jane, what'd you think of these chapters? I, I truly cannot decide who is more of a, a, a wretched little thing here. Uh-huh. Is, is, it, is it Annabeth kind of crawling around in the guts of hell, drinking a horrible fire from this thing, running into old enemies who she thought she'd killed? Or is it Leo having to live with the contents of his own brain for any length of time? Is Leo the most mentally ill character in all of uh, in all the series? <laughs> Oh, I think you could make that argument. I I feel like maybe he has the most, like, brain attacking itself of anyone that we've met. Uh Yeah, and I also think, like, 
I think what's what's cool about these chapters is we get a little um we get it kind of subtly established what the true cost of using Nemesis's fortune cookie was. Which is that it's it's made all of those problems ten times worse for him. Because like Leo has always had a problem with being like, Oh, I'm the worst, this was my fault, I fucked up. And now you know, that was always irrational before, but now whenever something goes wrong, he can think, Was that because of that fucking fortune cookie? Yeah. So he's just that this is this is Nemesis's true price. She's just made his anxiety a million times worse. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's really good because like like you said, a a, a Greek demigod is gonna go through like ten thousand troubles a day, right? Mm-hmm. The, a million bad things are going to happen, especially to Leo, who is just a magnet for it. And now he has an excuse to blame himself for all of it. So I, it's in that comparison, when it comes to Annabeth and Leo, I do think Leo is the more wretched little gremlin <laughs> because Annabeth is surviving right now on pure hopes and dreams. Uh, she's, she's drinking fire. She's surviving through hell. Leo is is not. Leo is having a miserable time on a vacation in Italy. I, Annabeth at least has Percy to back her up. Leo doesn't even have Jason. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Leo. Leo talks about Jason here. Like, like, you know, he's my best friend. He's he never teases me. Like when the time is wrong, like he'll he'll always be serious about stuff. But Jason also immediately gets captured and he has to do most of this mission alone. Jason is such a fucking chump. I feel uh-huh. like I feel like he was pretty cool in Lost Hero. And we we hear about all the cool shit he did while he was at Camp Jupiter. And since then, he has just he spent most of um Mark of Athena getting repeated head injuries. Like that was the main thing I remember about him from that book is he kept getting hit in the head and getting brain damage. Uh and now in this one he loses in a fight with two dwarves. Yeah. He you're discounting him on one aspect, which is that fucking awesome fight at the end of Mark of Athena. Where, where oh, he, that's like, true. Uh, that's true. Ta- tag teamed with Percy. But you're right. <laughs> you're completely right. Uh, he is always like the fail boy. It's not. It doesn't feel wrong or anything, though. I still find him to be like an enjoyable character, even though okay. he's just like getting owned so constantly. Uh we establish here that the one who is actually, I guess, trying to assert themselves as leader rather than Hazel is Jason. And he, this, this is not a tight cohort, right? This is not a Roman. This is not a, a a, like well-trained Roman legion. No, this is, I mean, some of them aren't even Roman, and every structure that they'd come to rely on in their little team has fallen completely apart, and Jason really doesn't seem to know how to fix that. Yeah, I think there was a conversation about that last book where he had to talk with Piper about, like, hey, I don't know how to, like, be an equal to everyone, and then (laughs) he... He tried it for a little bit, it seems like, and now he has to be the leader again. He's getting thrown through a real pinball course. Yeah, just as he was starting to adjust to maybe I don't have to be the leader all the time. Now he has to be the leader again. Exactly. This is also I... this is also uh, a certified gank moment. Uh huh. Which is what I've decided to to call any time when Frank takes an L is a gank moment. Yes, we we've this is long established. Uh huh. Just because like two books now have been two books since we heard that like he's supposed to be like the leader of the quest. 
And like there was a leadership vacuum right there, and two other people have, have like stepped into it more than he has. Frank, we see a bit of Frank here. He's in his like PJs, I think, uh-huh. uh, and he's like, what he gets to do here is be like, oh, this reminds me of uh, like ancestor, like honoring ancestors in China, and oh, this reminds me of how seven and his non-lucky number you know in china uh that, and uh-huh. that also confused me a little because wasn't frank's whole thing in son of neptune that he really didn't give a shit about his chinese heritage and didn't know anything about it i think there has been a subtle arc there to be honest like i i oh. feel like he he was rejecting that he was rejecting that in the son of neptune and now he mm-hmm. is sort of like i think after after the scene with his grandma where like they met again she dubiously died but probably didn't i mm. think there's been a and also an equally valid reading of this is once he's become like part of an ensemble cast he's, his role has been reduced um yeah but you you could also read it as like he has been sort of accepting that part of himself more i'm gonna choose to think of it that way as opposed to frank has been reduced to just the the chinese folklore or exposition machine uh-huh <laughs> yeah everyone everyone getting in their two cents on like oh this is like uh dia de los muertos absolutely it's very funny that just like everyone is leo has like a little thought trail like you know is it possible that greek and roman like these greek traditions are actually what influenced all of these other cultural traditions uh-huh. <laughs> rick riordan are you is rick's he being, fucking is he, laundering his ideas yeah <laughs> with his own characters it seems that way it feels that way <laughs> maybe this is just a leo moment right but maybe you know what's another leo moment what is that uh he's i feel like he's gone back into like behavior that will drive a wedge between him and frank because if there's there's one thing that he could do that would possibly like get under the skin of Frank Zhang. Uh, it's build an improvised explosive device. I feel like that might have some bad bad associations for him. <laughs> oh, I really wish Leo was the guy to... I I realize, like, they have to be... Like, they, they've had, like, a friendship arc. But mm-hmm. if part of the reason... like, And that this is explicitly not something Leo would ever say. But I also feel like if anyone was going to be the type of guy... Uh, like, Leo would be the type of guy who is like, what, how did your mom stepping on a landmine save our country? <laughs> God. God, no, yeah, you're right. I can see it in my mind's eye. And I can see like, Frank turning into a silverback gorilla and punching him through a wall. I really can. <laughs> At least then it wouldn't be like a love triangle thing. <laughs> that's true because i think also if leo said that hazel would probably that would probably be the end of that probably but he would be right for it also <laughs> we, we shouldn't we shouldn't ignore the annabeth chapters though we shouldn't we shouldn't that we get the weirdest fucking deep cut in these uh-huh kelly the empusa from fucking battle of the labyrinth what a what a pull she's a major antagonist she absolutely is not. 
That is, I th- there is some there is some retconning going on here with how important she is. I swear to God. I kind of feel the same way. Okay, here's my <laughs> here's everything I remember about Kelly the Impasai. She, or I guess that's plural. You know, is it I mean. Impusa or Impa- I I don't know. I always oh, no, forget. Rick, how to where's where's the pronunciation guide like you gave us for Clitius? <laughs> uh, but Kelly is she. I, here's what I remember: she was in Battle of the Labyrinth. She attacked mm-hmm. Percy and Rachel, uh, and then I think she was in the book later too, and they defeated her. Yeah. I. Annabeth is going into like Kelly suckered Luke, like manipulated Luke into like uh, doing darker and darker deeds for Kronos. I don't really remember that at all. I also don't remember that. Also, Luke tried to kill Percy and Lightning Thief, so like I feel like he was pretty dark sided from the beginning. Was, is Kelly supposed to have been there since like before book one? I don't think that's true. <laughs> Also, I just don't like the implication of, like, you know, Luke's downfall was actually caused by the influence of an evil woman. Like, fuck off. No, it wasn't. It was caused because he was a weird fascist. Yeah. Luke is a Luke is a good, complex character. We don't need to mm-hmm. reduce it to, like, he was, he was manipulated and goaded. Like, yeah. come on. He has motivations for things. I... I'm sure that if I went back and read those, there would be a bit about, like, Kelly and Luke are together, and Luke is, like, and, and she's whispering things to him or something like that. She was but probably, like, she was probably uh, sitting next to him on his on his chair in the Colosseum Battle in the Labyrinth or some shit. Like, right, probably. But I think this is overstating the importance of Kelly and, like, the lore. And An- Annabeth's, like, sudden huge grudge against her really is, is like, fascinating from that perspective. Yeah, it's just... Annabeth, why do you care? I don't know. I guess, I guess maybe, like... I guess maybe if we wanted to read this as, like, not just a reminder for the reader, but also from Annabeth's perspective, you could mm-hmm. say that, like, well, maybe she wants to overstate how important Kelly was in her own mind, because that means that she doesn't have to think quite as badly of Luke. That's a good point. We've never heard... We've never seen all that from Annabeth's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. We we know how she feels about it largely, but we don't know what she thinks of the timeline of things, how how one thing led to another. So I think this is an interesting clue in there, at least. And Percy, I don't think Percy saw it that way necessarily. I do think it'd be funny if she like explained this point of view to Percy, and he was just like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you met the guy, right? God, I. I think it would have been simple enough to have Annabeth like hate her because she tried to kill uh, her and Percy once. Uh huh. Yeah, that seems because, like a pretty good reason. Especially because Percy really displays some like rage mode here, and uh, when Arachne comes by, Percy fucking annihilates Arachne. <laughs> he one shots her. It's really cool. He. It's it's very sudden in a way that it's surprising and good and sets you on your toes for like, oh, is this what this entire, like, is this what it's all going to be like, right? Like, mm. uh, or, or is this what the entire journey through the underworld is going to feel like? It's just like in the middle of an entirely, di- like, they're just like talking and thinking about things and suddenly out of nowhere, Arachne is in the scene, is a threat, has jumped down, is descending. And Percy luckily, like, gets the swipe in right mm-hmm. uh but it's it's genuinely kind of uh shocking 
And especially like they are in Tartarus. I think this pretty much confirms or I feel like it confirms that like Arachne will be recurring through this and fucking chasing them down. Yeah, I I I hope that's the case. I do think it's it deflates the tension a little bit that she's killed so quickly at the start. Cause it just it, it makes it feel like she's gonna be less of a threat as opposed to like if she'd been stalking them for at least a few chapters and it was kind of a threat that was building in the background. That could have been cool. Yeah. No, that makes sense too. I guess I'm thinking of it in I guess this perspective is kind of suited to like if you think about a video game, uh uh-huh. You, so one of the ways that people drive tension in a lot of like horror video games is by showing you showing you something that can be easily defeated and then throwing it at you again and again in ways that are like less easy to handle. Uh-huh. And this kind of bears that same mark to me because I feel like what's going to happen is Arachne is going to keep coming back and just like, even if she dies, they're in Tartarus now. She can't die forever. <laughs> Uh, like she is in the place that she goes to and she dies. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think that could bring some interesting conflict, but I get your, I get your, your point though. Yeah. To, to, to come at it from a different gamer TM perspective, what it kind of puts me in mind of is like, um, the, the killer croc boss fight from, uh, Arkham Asylum. Uh huh. Where it's kind of like <laughs> the, 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 the whole thing with that fight is that like, you're being stalked by croc through the sewer. Um, and he's, you can't make too much noise, otherwise he's going to jump out and he's going to eat you. Uh, except um, at the start of the fight, he jumps out of the water, runs at you, you throw a batarang at his shot collar, and he kind of tips over sideways into the water, and then he's he's gone. Ah. And it just kind of it deflates the tension because you know that, like, you know, he's stalking you and he's going to jump out at you, but you just kind of bat him down, kind of like Percy does to Arachne. Yeah, that's fair. I... I hope you're right. I hope your thing comes true. Well, I think the part that, even beyond that, I think the part that primarily works for me here is uh, Percy's, like, emotion of it. Yeah, definitely. Annabeth says that, (laughs) Annabeth says that she is, like, never seen Percy as angry as he is here. And that really tracks for me with, like, how he was, would just, like, he was going to destroy anything and everything to get to her at the end of the book, and Arachne was at fault for that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is kind of, the the Percy mode that this most reminds me of is like um, late last Olympian Percy, when he was just like exhausted from fighting and like at at the point where he was just brutally killing monsters without even really thinking about it. Like when he fucking kills the Minotaur on the bridge. Yeah, like that feels like he's back at that point. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Percy rarely goes like limit break mode. He he can usually handle <laughs> things okay. Uh. But I I do enjoy when he gets like when he gets angry when when Percy angry. I guess I guess also like, it's been what like a day since the events of Mark of Athena while they were falling down that hole. Yeah. <laughs> so they're they're both still pretty fucked up from that. I what I really like is the, I really like this description of Tartarus as like a nuclear waste site or like like mm-hmm. they are walking through fucking chernobyl <laughs> <laughs> it's not the kind of comparison i expected for tartarus uh but the idea that this is like a place that exists is, is here for a purpose but living you can't live here there's no life here that there is no like there are no plants there's no animals all there is is pain and air that is like irradiating. Famously in Chernobyl there's no plants and animals. 
I'm not doing a direct comparison. I'm saying it's the vibe, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. I'm saying that, like, a place that is completely antithetical to being alive, I think that's cool. That's always a good setting. And I, if we're going for, like, a grimmer take on Annabeth and Percy's journey through hell, I think that is cooler than just, like, if it was a more traditional sort of vision of hell or what have you. Yeah, definitely. I also think just, like... Rick Ryden uses like he uses like nuclear comparisons very sparingly, but I, and I think that makes it very effective when it does come up because it is the kind of thing that comes up relatively frequently in these. Like um, the 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 three other times I can think of him talking in those kind of terms is like um, Ares eyes, which were like you know that's one of the coolest descriptions in the book. In the books, uh, the master bolt, which was like it's supposed to have the power of a nuclear bomb, uh, and some bullshit from Kane Chronicles. Oh yeah, and I just think there's like there's there's a way that he talks about um, about nukes and radiation that is like it always underscores the danger of it re- very well. Completely agree. It's something that he holds in reserves, but always knows how to use like well. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a comparison. It's a compare. Everyone is scared of radiation, right? Uh huh. <laughs> everyone knows what this can do, and everyone is frightened of it. And Rick Riordan knows when to engage with that. I can't wait for um, the fifth Tresnavari book when he just goes to Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> there was like a dog got kidnapped, so he has to go there. <laughs> God, speaking of Kane Chronicles. Uh huh. I just, I, I, it fucks me up that we're, we're once again in the afterlife with a river of fire, and there's not even an illusion. Yeah. Not even a mention. The river of fire in Kane Chronicles was kind of a big thing. Uh-huh. They couldn't drink I think from the, that. What? I think, like, it was such a big thing that at the end of those books, we, like, judged them on whether or not they deserved to be kicked into it. Well, that that one you certainly couldn't drink from. It was a bit, a bit more dangerous than mm-hmm. sort of the sort of wimpy-dimpy... Uh, river of fire here yeah this is just what it's fucking chili puree but a river and on fire (laughs) this is like slightly hot salsa with like it's not (laughs) it's not store brand like someone sells it out of their garage but annabeth like can't annabeth and percy are both like too white to handle the heat I was going to say Annabeth is having a true white woman moment in these (laughs) chapters no because she's like oh it's it's worse than Indian food (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's in, it, like you said a white woman moment for sure <laughs> i don't know i just i also just think it's funny that like kane chronicles will allude to percy jackson like there's at least one point where carter is like damn i wish i could manipulate water that would be the coolest power ever uh-huh uh and kane chronicles never alluded to in percy jackson or heroes of olympus and i wonder if that indicates something about what rick thinks of these books I think there's I think you're onto something there. Um there is one bit of really good description here uh with the river of fire uh, which is uh-huh. Annabeth reaching in and saying that like when she reaches into the river it feels cold but she's certain that's just because it's so hot that it's like destroyed her nerves. Mhm. I think that's amazing. <laughs> that like incredibly uh, like Direct to the point. What a good description. It's good to. It's the 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 descriptions of what Percy and Annabeth are like dealing with are like genuinely pretty harrowing. 
in a way that I am like I'm very pleased to see just because like I think we've talked in the past about how it can sometimes feel like Rick will not like follow through on something like we've been hearing for like 10 fucking books now that ambrosia makes you explode if you eat too much of it but we never see it mm-hmm. and so just like the fact that he is willing to go this visceral with what an awful place tartarus is after kind of hyping it up for uh, quite a few books now uh, i'm you know i'm just i'm glad that he stuck the landing on that completely agreed yeah it seems like maybe what's happening here is that we're focusing we're focusing on two different types of torment i guess in each side of the story Annabeth mm. and Percy are being faced with sort of this environmental terror. Uh, like everything around them is horrible in a different way. And they're going through these different settings while Hazel and Leo and presumably the rest of them are all being sort of internally in that eternal anguish mode. So we've got sort of like the ex- internal versus the external here pretty directly. Yeah, Definitely. And also, sometimes your external torment is a character from, like, five books ago who no one remembers. Yeah. Uh, you you forgot about <laughs> Kelly? Kelly, our favorite character, the cheerleader? I'm sorry, I forgot that we mentioned her at the end of every episode. And I'm like, damn, I hope that Kelly comes back. Yeah. When- I've been insisting for so many books now that Kelly should start coming back slowly in the background, and I keep insisting that background details are Kelly. Ten-time <laughs> Ten not-cis-hat winner Kelly? <laughs> yeah i i so i do enjoy i enjoy the annabeth chapters here yeah let's 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 just show up the leo one some more though he's cuddling up to some toes <laughs> listen everybody needs a hobby <laughs> yeah leo yeah. leo is the only person in the ship who's not in a relation actually no, wait, Leo's not the only person on the boat who's not in a relationship anymore. Oh? Nico. Oh! Nico's right there, and you know, Nico is uh, Hazel's half-brother. I'm sure there's a lot of traits in common between them. I could oh. see I could see Leo having some confusing feelings about that. I want that to happen. I know that it won't Please. happen in my heart of hearts, <laughs> but I want it to happen. Anyway, I got sidetracked trying to make a joke about how he doesn't have a girlfriend and therefore he's co- cozying up to the statue. Entirely fair. It's like a Pygmalion situation. Uh-huh. Oh, wait, a what? A Pygmalion. You know, it's the guy who, like, makes a statue into a, He makes a statue and, like, conjures it into a wife. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I believe you. Okay, so Pygmalion was this guy in, I think, Greece. Uh, he was a king... And he sculpted an ivory statue, I think called Galatea, uh, who was like his ideal of womanhood, fell in love with her. And then I think I want to say like pled to Aphrodite to be like, will you make her alive, please? There have been many modern interpretations of this, of course, from Shakespeare to fucking Uh Shaw. But this is the basis of the story. See, I, I learned so much doing this podcast. Like, I learned Greek myths from the books. I learned Greek myths from you. I've also learned the um, the Percy Jackson technique, where you don't learn any of the mythology because you know that uh, uh, someone in your life will just tell you whenever you ask. Uh-huh. Am I your <laughs> Annabeth? That's so sweet. <laughs> oh, God. If you ever heard of My Fair Lady, that's that's Pygmalion. Nope. Okay, never mind. <laughs> But yeah, he's cuddling up to some toes, and he's he's getting real cozy with it, and he 
there's a distinction drawn here that I was actually kind of uncertain that like the statues ha- probably has gimmicks, but that those gimmicks are largely magical and not technological. Mm-hmm. I am interested by this distinction because I guess it is true that Leo tends to work with like literal bits of technology, but it's actually not confusing to me that it won't work, won't work with like magical technology, but it doesn't feel like a distinction that's been drawn as clearly up till now. So the way, the way that I read this distinction is more a case of like, um, and one of the things that we really liked in, uh, Demigod Diaries was uh, Leo explaining how the engine in the Argo works, where it was like basically he got some magic shit that was just like really hot, uh, and basically like lashed that up to a normal steam turbine, and that's kind of how he works with technology. Like he's very much using using magical shit that doesn't require much direct interaction to like accentuate like you know actual like technology and stuff that would work in real life quote-unquote oh hey that's a good shout that's actually another mention of nuclear power oh yeah the, that that thing like, that he builds there is compared and yeah. that is powering the argo 2 is compared to a nuclear reactor yeah also we get buford again oh yeah we do he's, he's doing he's doing his little his little table snork me 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 it's so cute <laughs> i love you buford i'm glad leo brought buford <laughs> Still somehow the most important character from that book. God. Uh, but then he has some dreams. We get some Leo dreams. Some classic Leo Gaia dreams. And I guess we should go through these. There's Clytius. This is an all-timer demigod has a bad dream about exposition, I think. This uh-huh. is a pretty good one. Yeah, like in a, in a, in a genuine way? Yeah, in a genuine way. In a, like, the... It's it's delivering this exposition and this like foreshadowing for later, and also giving us a window into the anxiety-stricken depths of Leo's mind. Uh huh. Because this is just a fucking horrible nightmare that kind of speed runs every single thing that he's afraid of, where it just goes from like the his horrifically traumatic memories of his mum dying in that workshop, uh, then to like Camp Half Blood being wrecked and like everyone he knows dying. Uh, and then uh, being confronted by a magic person who he can't really like negotiate or talk his way out of dealing with. You're exactly right. This is all his, thing- his anxieties manifesting. It's a good twist on the classic dream format uh, by mm-hmm. tying it directly into his character instead of like having him see things that then make him afraid, uh, which is I think more common. Uh, yeah, things that we know Leo, things that we already know Leo has anxieties about are being made manifest here. Uh, <laughs> For instance, I the part that really I really like, and th- I'm surprised that this is like kind of the first time this has happened, uh, is the sorceress, uh, like mm-hmm. sp- specifically being like, "Hey, you fucking kid! I could kill you in your dream, right? Like, I know you're dreaming right <laughs> now. I could kill you. That's scary. If you die in the dream, you die in real life. She basically says it, right? <laughs> yeah, and." Man, what is her problem? I don't know. We're getting all these hints <laughs> about this mysterious sorceress. I feel like it's either going to be this huge reveal, or we're going to be like, oh, of course it was her, or it's going to be a little bit disappointing. I don't know. Uh, I think it'll turn out to be someone from the island in Sea of Monsters, because we will never escape Sea of Monsters. Ooh, that could be right. 
It no, they already met Raina's sister, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was running the weird femdom Amazon. Right, right, okay. Just an- another detail to add to like this is a good anxiety dream, is that um the first things that Leo kind of notices are that his tool belt is sewn shut and he can't talk. Yeah, so just like it instantly neuters his two greatest assets. Oh, you're right. It you're right. Doesn't really. It doesn't explicitly draw attention to it, but it's a nice detail. That's a really good catch. He, those are his two things that he does. It's very. It's like simultaneously does very well by just like completely neutralizing everything that makes him feel powerful, and also mm-hmm. it calls back to like the Matrix. I guess if we want to give a cultural touch <laughs> point, like oh yeah, the the scene in uh the beginning of the Matrix where Neo is being interviewed by Agent Smith. And gets his fucking mouth uh, just completely sewn shut. God, I just imagined Leo like opening his mouth and not being able to talk, and now I can't remove the image from my brain of him having like the weird stretchy film over his mouth. God, and that's much worse, actually. It is. Here, there's an interesting bit here, which is that it is. It is. Is this implying that Octavian is very directly being influenced by Gaia? Ooh, yeah, because he speaks with Gaia's voice, right? Yeah, and I, it feels like that has more to it than just this is a dream Gaia is showing him. Like, it feels like maybe this is implying Octavian's machinations are being somewhat manipulated by Gaia. I'm not sure how I feel God, about that. I hope not. I hope not. Because <laughs> it's, again, we will never escape Kane Chronicles. This is the exact shit that I didn't like in Serpent Shadow, where all the House of Life bad guys were secretly being mind-controlled by Apophis. Yeah, it seems to be Rick Riordan's M.O. I'll say I think Octavian is... There could be something good there where if it is that Octavian has all of his motivations independently and that he is, like, the type of guy already and then those get, like, manipulated by Gaia into her larger goals, like, that is already what's happening. But mm-hmm. if it stays at that and it's not like literal mind control, I think I'll be okay with it. I could live with that. Yeah. I do want to know what's up with the sorceress. I assume this is who Hazel's going to have to fight, right? Exactly, right? Uh, Hazel and Nico make make eyes about it. They're looking at each other. And uh, Hazel's basically like, I have to deal with this on my own. Leo's like, do you know magic yet? She's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Can't fault her for confidence. Definitely. You know what my favorite scene is in these chapters, though? What's your favorite scene in these chapters? It's in the mess hall when Nico's debriefing everyone and Frank starts to get anxious about... Um, I think it's when he starts to get anxious about, like, it's the seventh month of the year. The seventh month of the year is, like, the... Um, the seventh month of the year is when, like, the ghost realm and the living are most connected. Ah, this can't be a coincidence. It's all adding up. And Leo is just, like, realizes he's Morse tapping I love you. And he gets really embarrassed about it, but it's very sweet. Yeah. Yeah, but it also, at the same time, it kind of highlights, like, his isolation. Because nobody else at the table understands that he was even doing that to make fun of him for it. Yeah, exactly. Like he gets embarrassed, but no one can be like, "Haha, that's kind of gay, Leo." Uh, <laughs> it's sweet insofar as like he is expressing his emotions in one of the only way ways Leo knows how. Yeah. What like this is probably the most direct form of comfort. This is he is giving the comfort that he knows, right? 
uh, this is something that his mom did for him. This is something that he is trying yeah. to give to Frank, but it can't reach Frank. Frank doesn't like Frank doesn't have that same context. You're right. So you're right that it emphasizes that loneliness really well while still being a great, like sweet little moment. I, I hope that Leo and Frank become just like the world's best friends and maybe they kiss. I, I, I hope that Leo rides him as a horse. I hope so. <laughs> I also just want to point out that, um, Rick's underlying a lot about like the importance of the number seven, you know, the seven heroes, it's the seventh month, it's etc. etc. Uh but did not write seven books about it, which would have been the hack move. <laughs> yeah. He just wrote five True books. Chad about only it. writes five. He wrote five books he wrote five books, which is uh what his marketing team said would be the most like cost effective. <laughs> that would explain why he keeps writing in, in clumps of five, wouldn't it? <laughs> probably i don't know i mean there's the there's the five main books three like oh we'll look at some different gods and then five main books again so i guess it's a pattern and then three look at some different gods and then five main books again exactly exactly (laughs) yeah you might be onto something there just to, to stay on leo for a second percy can never let leo meet his mom uh huh. never in a million years yeah because because Leo will... I, I refuse to believe that Leo didn't take a cell phone picture of Neptune's dick. Yeah. And I refuse to believe that he wouldn't show that to Sally Jackson and be like, how accurate is this? <laughs> it's incredibly funny that we just get Leo being like, oh, yep, there's Neptune's cock right there. That's, yep, that's Percy's dad's dick right in front of my face. <laughs> gonna, gonna try to avoid looking at that. <laughs> a little bit of that classic Percy Jackson toilet humor. Uh-huh. Listen, a little bit's all right here and there. Oh, for sure. I, I, w- I thought you were going to say that we would have to avoid Leo ever meeting Percy's mom because if, if he ever, like, felt motherly affection again, he would just be overloaded and, like, break down for a while. <laughs> I mean, that is also possible. Yeah. Poor Leo. Poor Leo. God, best character in these books. Yeah, I love him. The House of Hades is like a roguelike dungeon to me. It it truly is. It's 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 a crypt, you might say, a necro crypt. It's a necro crypt, and you might dance in it if you wanted to. <laughs> I, but it really is just like it's got these all. It's got these procedurally generated tunnels that people are always going through, and you like ran you randomly may or may not get like lost in the tunnels you get different items and bonuses uh it's very easy to die i don't know there's something to i this. think it's very fun i think it's very funny also that we we thought we were building up to like a roguelike dungeon at the last uh, the uh, end of the last book there's three rooms uh-huh and i think it'd be kind of funny if the house of hades was also just like three rooms <laughs> I, it's pr- a lot of things end up just being three rooms uh i think that like a lot of the times locations get built up in that way and it's like well what are the interesting things i can say here ah well i have i have a couple and i guess i'll do one more just to do try and make it (laughs) i guess i guess also the uh the mark of athena quest got kneecapped by only being from annabeth's perspective and if we're sending six of these fuckers in here it might it might go on a bit longer right 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 Seven. Sorry, I forgot about Coach Hedge. Come on now, you can't forget about him. The most important character in these books. Oh, we we keep staying with Coach Hedge. I he. I guess I don't have a lot to say about him here. We should probably. I'll use him to 
to transition to talking about the the funny little guys who we meet. Yep. Uh, what was their names? I actually wrote them down. Akborn and Pasalos. Yeah, the, the Kirkapes. The little monkey dwarf men. This is a funny type of creature. This is this is a type of creature for sure. Not you don't find them I... so funny. <laughs> I I don't know I. Here's my thing about them, is I, I found them pretty irritating, but because Leo also found them extremely irritating and was, like, very clearly pissed off with them for most of it and, like, not having any of their shit, uh-huh. I feel like it kind of worked, because I was with Leo for that. It does. Like, they are supposed to be irritating, and so you are irritated. Uh, it, uh-huh. Which, you know, varying degrees of that can be tolerable, but this I think this mm-hmm. was decent at that. Like, they got their comeuppance. And it made it, yeah, it made it satisfying when Leo used his IED on them. <laughs> that is what he does, Lord. <laughs> I. Uh, it's interesting how they just like. I think it shows how off balance this crew is that they get taken <laughs> down by two guys, uh, just like two incredibly low level guys who, if like Percy and Annabeth had been there, they would have handled them in a minute. Oh, absolutely. Also, I just I just realized. The Leo, there's like these these two watchtowers that the 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 dwarf monkeys are hanging out in. And Leo sets off a bomb in one of them. This is this is truly nine eleven for people from Bologna. Ah, <laughs> uh, they're they they already live in Bologna. Why do we have to make them have more unfor- unfortunate things in their lives? That's right. I'm declaring war on the city of Bologna. <laughs> Do you, is there anything particular you have against them besides the the excessive Neptune cock and weird monkey people? I guess it's mostly those two things. <laughs> the Italy, you're on watch. Sally Jackson moving to Bologna as we speak. <laughs> uh, it's like I, it's like he never left. <laughs> My favorite. Some, I, some really good bits in here uh, include just like I love Leo rummaging through like the the grocery store, like the fucking corner store, and just buying random shit, uh, and having to use some candy bars that he presumably just took to snack on, uh, like to bribe a guard. And it it works. I mean, I guess I guess that guy's just not being paid enough to give a shit. So when Leo's just like, uh, yeah, I got a bag of fucking jolly ranchers here you go he lets yeah. him in i got some fucking jaffa cakes have some <laughs> god i wish i had some jaffa cakes i've been trying british cuisine lately I-, I had some recently they're they're quite good jaffa cakes is like one of the only good ones what, what, what are the good british snacks uh it's jaffa cakes i'm partial to jelly babies although those are divisive okay um, hobnobs. Hobnobs are good. What the fuck is a hobnob? <laughs> that, okay, I swear that's not a word I made up. Uh, hobnobs are like uh, oatmeal biscuits. Ooh. They are they are very crunchy, and also you can get ones that have like a thick layer of chocolate over the top of them. Oh, they're the, extremely tasty. These look really good. <laughs> oh, I love like oatmeal cookies. Yeah. I, I'm going to have to look out for these next time I'm in the British section of the store. Wild to me that that exists. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> I guess I guess there's kind of like, because there's a, I think there's an, uh, an American candy store in the city near me where you can go and you can buy like, 
You can pay like five pounds for a can of Mountain Dew. Oh, sure. <laughs> That's It's so interesting the ways that this works in the world. We're all connected <laughs> by Mountain Dew. <laughs> and capitalism. That's true. Both of those things are true that you said. Let's the, These guys have a connection to a character we saw last book, uh, Hercules. Oh, yeah. Who they call Black Bottom. God, Hercules is so lame. Yeah, the world's worst pirate name, I have to say. <laughs> God, yeah, it's, it sounds like an old-timey STI euphemism. <laughs> he Every book that he, that he is, like, mentioned, he sa- he is less cool. Like, including the one where he finally shows up. Like, in this book, we learn that he just, like, always ran around naked. Like, imagine a like, big buff guy just running around naked, like, from place to place. <laughs> and, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go defeat monsters. Like, okay, come on. Uh, So he fi- he's finally settled down on the island and put on some clothes, I guess. Even though he's, like, living alone. Which is, like, I feel like if you were living alone on a beach on your own island... That's the time. That that is the time to spend all your time being naked. Because who's going to stop you? I guess so. Incel on the other side of the island? No. Yeah. The God. Yeah. Well, what if what if one of the mortals who passes by on their cruise ship has like can see through the mist, and then just like there's just this guy with his cock out. Maybe he has a really tiny one. Maybe Maybe that he's paranoid that a mortal will see through the mist and see that and start telling people. Uh, yeah. Hercules, Hercules has a tiny dick. A very tiny dick. That's why he, this is the lowest form of humor. I was about to say that's he compensates <laughs> for it with. But what the fuck are we doing? I it's fine to have a tiny dick, but not if you're Hercules. Look, nothing we can say about his dick will is any more humiliating than the fact that he's called Black Bottom by these two monkeys and that Piper defeated him by just burying him under Thanksgiving hams. Yeah, what a loser! Fuck Hercules. <laughs> I love I love that he's a loser in these books, genuinely. Same. He went from hero to zero in sort of the <laughs> the, Her- the the Hercules Disney reversal pipeline. God, you you love to see it. Yeah. So when we finally shake these guys down, I a bit here that I like is Jason like blowing. He like summons a crack of lightning, um, melts melts the side of the tower. And comes through with, like, his sword steaming and, like, lightning crackling in his eyes. And then he looks and sees Leo already tied up the dwarves. And he's like, oh, man, I want like, <laughs> I wanted to do he that. He does his whole fucking superhero landing and everything. It's really, it really <laughs> endears me to him. I just, I, Jace, Jason needs, like, a, a, a dub. Please, someone give him one. He needs a dub, but it's so fun that he is just getting like his never getting one it's so funny (laughs) like there is an extent to which if he came in and was just like always beating ass i think that would be worse than like the one showing a book he gets to be the super cool guy that everyone knows he is this is true on the other hand percy insta killed arachne in these chapters and it was cool true (laughs) (laughs) Again, I feel like I feel like it wouldn't even be a contest if these two got into a fight. No, probably <laughs> not. Like I, I genuinely don't think like if we're gonna talk about power rankings, I, which we we rarely do on this show, but I will here. I do think that Jason is just very outmatched by Percy. I think I think it's a power thing. I also think it's a just 
J- Jason feels like he mostly fights out of a sense of duty. Meanwhile, Percy fights for the people around him, and I feel like that just gives him way more of an edge in tenacity. Yeah, like if they ever actually did the Civil War thing, if they ever actually mm-hmm. like did like Jason was leading the charge against Camp Half Blood uh, in that AU, I think Percy would take him down in an instant. <laughs> God, remind remind me. I need to dig up the the thing I wrote that was that, and I need to show you it. I I'm very curious about that. <laughs> so, but yeah, I really enjoy the end of this. We get first of all, we get uh, them taking the quest items, uh, like a like a side quest item and the main quest item, uh, which was like <laughs> an old bronze navigation device that Odysseus made, which I think is. There's something about just like, do you know this guy from mythology? He made this interesting device. It's a bit of like ephemera, like mythological ephemera that Mm -hmm. feels not gratuitous, I guess. Like, it's like, okay, that that makes sense to exist in the world. Like, it makes sense that Odysseus did things and people would want those things. Uh, And a book from a Venetian god who the the dwarves are, are too scared to name. And not only do they collect the main item and the quest item, uh, Leo also unlocks the uh, special blue dialogue option for FTL. Yes. Uh, where he's like, well, I- I've thought of a-, a solution that can benefit everyone, where we won't kill you or turn you into this god uh, as long as you go to New York and do fucking undercover operations for us against the Romans. That was awesome. Uh, I... <laughs> seeing them take down the entire Argo 2 and then at the end hearing Leo be like all right go harass like harass uh steal and generally make the lives hard of those Roman guys in New York so there's this guy named Octavian you need to steal all of his zippers (laughs) Uh, you should see how shiny the the eyes on all his stuffed animals are Oh, that would just help his fortunes. He's going to buy those things anyway soon. <laughs> B-I? I don't think that works the same way Behead does. I shouldn't I shouldn't just mindlessly throw around prefixes like that. <laughs> uh, do you have any th- other thoughts on these chapters before we wrap it up? No. <laughs> yeah. I I enjoyed these a lot, so I'm glad, I'm glad that we're still trekking yeah. through it. But you know what I also enjoy? What do you enjoy? Our intro and outro music, which is Super Mario Ocean by Space Pony. You can find that at OC Remix. Uh, and what I enjoy is our cover art by Vera at Innsmouth underscore in on Twitter. You know what? No. Back it up. Back it up. Oh. oh. Well, which characters were not cis-het this episode? Oh shit. Okay, yeah. We yeah. <laughs> you even you even mentioned it earlier. We can't just forget to do it again. Uh I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Leo. I, I I truly believe in my heart of hearts that he could end up falling for Nico. Yeah, I think that's a good call. Leo uh, with Nico, and I don't know. There's something to him pointedly avoiding uh, Poseidon's uh, little Poseidon, <laughs> the Penisidon, his little trident, his trident. Yeah, uh, there, he's he. I m- m- thinks he's burying some feelings. <laughs> the most heterosexual thing you could do is look directly at that cock because you're securing your sexuality. That's exactly right. I think Jason would say that while staring directly at it. <laughs> oh. Also him tapping the I love you to Frank. Like I know that's supposed to be platonic, but come on. 
Uh-huh. I'll give it to... Uh, I'm going to give it to Annabeth. You know, this newfound spark of hatred <laughs> for uh, for <laughs> Kelly. Methinks a bit of kismessitude. Fuck off. <laughs> you can't say that. Why? <laughs> What's to stop me? Me. Okay. And the podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, the podcast is stopping me by ending. This is true. We are hosted by the Moonshot Network. That's moonshotpods.com. You can find all their wonderful shows. We're introducing a bunch of new shows. It's our our class of 2023 has been joining up. We got so many good shows. Uh, Alone at the Table, uh, which is just one person going through solo RPGs. Really quick, munchable episodes. Incredibly good vibes. A bit of a bit of a munch squad, you might say. <laughs> I. You can't say that about the new show on our network, Jane. <laughs> That's a horrible thing to say about a show that I really like. <laughs> go to moonshotpods.com. And if you want to find us, you can go to twitter.com slash unwisegirls, where for a dollar a month. Nope. <laughs> if you want to find us, you can go to twitter.com slash unwisegirls. Uh, you can find our socials, our link to our Discord channel, our email, our visual companions and episode updates, posts from us, anything you might want to know. Also, if you want to support us, you can leave a five-star rating and review on your uh, podcast app of choice. You can tell your friends about us and be like, hey, there's this awesome little Percy Jackson podcast. And they'll say, I prefer Harry Potter. And you can suplex them into the Nevada Canyon. <laughs> uh, and also, you can give us money at patreon.com slash unwisegirls, where for a dollar a month, you can get the Discord role of uh, Camp Counselor. For $3 a month, you get the Discord role of friend of Bacchus as well as all of our bonus content uh yeah on the we we've we've been we've been trucking on through black sales we started um started season two recently and we've been talking about just you know do you, do you think we'll ever see toby hayes's cock on that show and we can like we can compare it to like the neptune statue in this you say toby hayes what's his name toby stevens toby stevens I hope we do. I hope we do. <laughs> uh, I think we see his... I I guess we don't... I, it could be prosthetic, but I feel like he's naked at least one time in Black Sails. I don't know. I, I think he's been naked. I don't know if we've seen it full frontal. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to frame and by you know frame. What? If you, if you want to be there for when we might get to something like that, uh, join up on our Patreon. That's right. And for $5 a month, you can get the Discord roll of Venus is Chosen, all of our bonus content, and a special thank you at the end of every episode. Speaking of which, this week we'd like to thank Simcoe, I Love Sammy's Great, uh, Danny, Tana, Mercy, Veronica, Friend, Bree, and Erica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And as we always say, at the end of every single episode. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. Bye bye. Bye. You know, Frosty the Snowman, it's truly the most quintessential Christmas song. It introduces a beloved figure who invites the children to come to him, gets into an altercation with state authorities. Right, the hollering stop. And then he dies, but promises to be back again one day. 
Frosty is a Christ figure. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Catherine. And we're I'll Be Pod for Castmas, a seasonal podcast where we overanalyze Christmas pop songs and movies and put them into conversation with some unlikely pieces of literature. Don't be a cringe. Join us on I'll Be Pod for Castmas on the Moonshot Podcast Network.